0: Hello, once again, and welcome back to the Gratuitous Puzzling Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk.
1: And I'm your co-host, Jack Sneflin. And this is our bracket, uh, movies based on a book.
0: Yeah, I, these are both boat movies based on books about boats. How many
1: of those are there on this bracket? We've got Master and Commander, Perfect Storm, Adrift.
0: I believe Life of Pi is.
1: Life of Pi definitely is. So is In the Heart of the Sea. And you make an argument for Hotel Transylvania 3.
0: <laughs> a very weak argument. Yes.
1: It doesn't really hold water. I hate you. <laughs> Good.
0: But yes, uh, thank you for joining us for episode six of our Bracket on a Boat. This week we'll be discussing
1: Master Commander from 2003 and Perfect Storm from 2000. For once, I'm the one who knows this. There we go. It's a Master Commander, the far side of the world. They really wanted this to be a series.
0: Well, to be fair, the book it's based on is from a prolific series. There are like dozens of those books. Yep. And I can understand why in 2003 he thought this was going to be big.
1: I get what they were going for. I understand why it didn't work. I understand how this could easily be made to work as an ongoing thing really well.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, we should also probably mention that for Master and Commander, we do have a content warning for suicide. Mm-hmm. If you want to just skip that, but are interested in our discussion of uh, the perfect storm, we'll go ahead and leave a timestamp in the description for you to jump to that.
1: Mm-hmm. So what happened to Master Commander?
0: Set during the Napoleonic Wars, Captain Jack Aubrey commands the HMS Surprise and is ordered to disable the French privateer, the Acheron. In their first encounter, the Acheron uses fog cover to ambush Aubrey, and the ship takes heavy damage. Afterwards, many sailors plead that the surprise is no match for the larger and faster Acheron and to return to port for repairs. But Aubrey suspects that the Acheron is heading to pillage the British whaling fleet and presses on, having the crew perform repairs en route. During their trip towards the Galapagos, towards the whaling fleet, a number of misfortunes befall the surprise, including losing a man overboard, lack of rain causing water rationing, and dead winds for civil progress. Looking for a scapegoat, the crew settles on already unpopular midshipman Hollum and label him a Jonah. He takes it poorly enough that he throws himself overboard, holding a cannonball. The tragedy cools the tempers on the ship, and their luck turns, and they resume chase of the Acheron. While resting in the Galapagos, the Acheron is spotted, and the surprise disguises their ship as a whaling vessel in order to ambush the privateer when they attempt to plunder them. The ruse succeeds, but a number of named crew are lost in the assault. Aubrey gives his first mate control over the Acheron and they begin sailing home, only to realize that who Aubrey thought was the Acheron's doctor was actually its captain. They change course and renew the chase. There's a lot that I gloss over Mm -hmm. in that summary, but this film is structured more like a sort of anthology than a normal movie would be. It is very episodic. Mm -hmm.
1: Episodic films are not inherently bad. However, they are kind of an uphill struggle to maintain tension all the way through for things. Mm-hmm. Especially one where there's not all that much variation between the episodes. Like, these are all mm-hmm. the same characters in the same setting, mostly, dealing with kind of the same general problems. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those dealings with aren't all that dramatic or fun. So it's not like a comedy movie where we kind of move from different wacky set pieces to wacky, wacky set piece.
0: Yeah, and unfortunately the film also doesn't do a great job of investing us in the characters. Like, we have a pretty big ensemble cast here. There's at least a dozen main characters of various importance throughout the film, and the film really only spends significant time with two.
1: Mm-hmm. Our character notes only have like four characters written down, one of whom is only just the backstory character of Lord Admiral Nelson. Mm-hmm. It's a pity, because I think... There was time in this movie to to flesh everybody out and to let everyone have, like, this is your episode to shine or whatever. Mm -hmm. And they kind of do, but not in a way that makes me go, oh, yeah, you're the guy who did the thing. Mm -hmm. Like, there's Trepanation guy who kind of led the He's a Jonah thing, but I don't really know who that character is or what he wants or feels or how he's changed all that much.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, he gets a head wound during the first encounter with the Acheron, which happens, like, right as the movie gets going. So we don't have a... Very clear before after picture, which could have been really interesting because a a head wound with very limited medical care can lead to some very drastic changes in personality. um, Especially with the level of medicine we're talking back about in the early 1800s.
1: And also working on a boat.
0: Yeah. Like the film tries to lean into it by making him this kind of more mysterious sort of unreliable character. But he's in the film so little and we don't have a sense of how he's changed and that doesn't really work. Mm-hmm. And
1: we see how he reacts to things, but not necessarily what his long-term desires are. Mm-hmm. So at no point do I think, oh, these choices are moving him towards his desires or away from his desires. He's just sort of there to create narrative drama. He's
0: the creepy old man plot device.
1: Mm-hmm. Which could be fine if that wasn't the case for so many other characters. Like, he's the young kid who wants to learn things these are the other kids this is the also an officer guy
0: yeah it's really weird seeing like these children aboard this military vessel they're working to become officers
1: (laughs) which historically a thing i get it and honestly them being there was great because they look different than other people so i could tell them apart not from each other but from the other characters this is not a good movie for someone who isn't good at faces everyone is wearing the same outfit and has basically the same hair
0: yeah, that's true. We haven't really started talking about like the two actual main characters, though. So we have Captain Jack Aubrey, Lucky Jack. The men, of course they would follow Lucky Jack anywhere, rightfully confident of victory.
1: And his shipwife, Dr. Maturin.
0: The movie never calls the doctor his shipwife, but we came to that conclusion pretty early on in the film, because that is the only fun reading.
1: So Lucky Jack is played by Russell Crowe without a beard. He looks very different. It was very weird.
0: Yeah, he has like long, blondish hair and no beard.
1: Uh, what's the bucket? Who plays Dr. Maturin? Paul Bettany. Yeah. And then Paul Bettany plays uh, Dr. Maturin, who is kind of foppish.
0: Foppish. He's a doctor in the military, and you can definitely tell that he's in the military because someone in his family forced him to be.
1: He kind of has that, the professor from Gilligan's Island thing where he's also an expert on birds and bugs and other things. It makes sense for him as, like, a very well-educated man, but...
0: It's also, like, during that time period, the Galapagos were just starting to be explored. This is Mm pre-Darwin. And a lot of people who are, you know, into the anatomy of the human body are also into the anatomy of other creatures. So it makes sense for him to have the naturalist hobby.
1: Yeah. It works. It gives him some, like, character variety and things to do. It gives us the pleasant detour through the Galapagos. Naval discipline doesn't operate out here, Mr. Blakely. I must find that cormorant.
0: And should it indeed prove flightless, you can join me at the Royal Society dinner as co-discoverer. That was a fun part of the movie.
1: <laughs> I sound sarcastic, but it, it was a breath of fresh air because it wasn't the same thing on the boat.
0: Yeah, we'll, we'll get to
1: it. And Jack and Maturin kind of have this dynamic where Lucky Jack is this like confident seaman who knows what he's doing. And the doctor is kind of cautioning him towards rationality and empathy and stuff. Mm-hmm. Have you seen any episode of Star Trek? It is the same Kirk and Bones dynamic. You see, I'm rather understanding of mutinies. Men pressed from their homes, their chosen occupations, confined for months aboard a wooden prison. Steven, I profoundly respect your right to disagree with me here in this cabin, but I can only afford one rebel on this ship.
0: Pretty much. There just doesn't happen to be a Spock here. Mm -hmm. And very quickly, their personalities and roles on the ship become at odds. Uh, the doctor is looking to take care of the crew Jack is trying to follow orders and do his best and as the chase goes on and as things grow more and more unlucky for them they clash more and more mm-hmm. and every single like fight they have is it really feels like an old buried couple mm-hmm.
1: of the corruption of power you or forget it's...
0: yourself doctor no Jack no you've
1: forgotten yourself you see for my part I look upon a promise as binding. Promise was can never occur to me. I command a ship. will not, not a not private same yacht. Opinion. We do not
0: have time for your damned hobbies, sir.
1: The look of hurt on Paul Bettany's face after he's told, "No, you can't go to the Galapagos. We need to chase this ship as." We there. don't have time, honey. Yeah, <laughs> there's this strong vibe of like I should tell him to stay on the couch, but I just I just can't. Not in front of the men. Us injecting cheap slash uh, into this thing is because kind of not a lot to hold on to here. Or rather, there are, but I'm not thrilled about doing so.
0: If you're really into the, like the nitty gritty of military history, I can understand really getting into this film and I understand why people are really attached to the books because there's a lot of interesting stuff in that regard. It's just I don't think it's enough to fill the two hours for people who aren't super invested in that already. Right,
1: And I do love the like age of sail style boats I love the, the complexities of keeping them moving The processes by which they are adjusted for, uh, for more speed or for safety or whatever uh, And even I wasn't all that into this part I think probably because it was more focused on the military dynamics that I wasn't that big mm-hmm.
0: on Yeah, honestly if we spent a little bit more time with them trying to repair the ship on route And the complications from that That could have been interesting But we get maybe 15 minutes out of that
1: Mm -hmm. and there are some fun bits i don't want to say there's nothing good here like there is a great bit where the akron is chasing them and night is falling so they make a dummy ship that will look exactly like the back lanterns of the surprise and let those lanterns ride as they snuff the other ones and then send that like dummy ship off to the side while the guy piloting it just you know swims back quickly and the akron turns off and chases them and it's really fun like that was a great little bit i like the ingenuity of it, the tension of it, the the freshness of what was going on. It was fun.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I really like some of those like interesting cat and mouse military style tactics, but that's really like one of the only examples. It's that and then disguising their ship as a whaling vessel at the end. Mm-hmm. And those two bits are like an hour and a half apart almost.
1: Yeah. We get some decent
0: ship-to-ship combat. That's fun, but... It, I wish I could see what was going on. Yeah, it's not super well shot. I wouldn't even necessarily say it's not well shot. It's just that every time that's going on, there's just this utter chaos or they're in the middle of a storm and you can barely see what's happening. Mm -hmm. I will say the final boarding of the Akron is not well shot. They don't give us a good sense of how the battle is progressing. Really, the only bit of progress that we're able to get is, that okay, they're on the top deck and then they've now reached below deck. Mm-hmm. And that's the only way we can tell that the uh, HMS Surprise is winning.
1: Yeah. thing well, that made me laugh. It might even be historical, but it still made me laugh. Is the Surprise with these like crisp white sails, and the Akron sails are kind of this like dingy gray. So we, know, it's kind of like the like the white hats versus the black hats thing from a western, and that that was fun. I mm-hmm. also there's a cool bit where one of the lesser crew members saw the Akron being built back during peace times and managed to make a perfect scale replica from memory with someone's help. Kind of cool. It's nice to see like the thought into why the ship is so hard to hit with um, your, your cannons.
0: Yeah, like and it comes down to it's very broad up top, but it narrows down with a very sharp keel, which allows it to be fast, even though it's very heavy, mm-hmm. uh, which is why they had to send a smaller ship after it, because that's the only way it was able to keep up. Yeah.
1: And I will say that the setup is really fun. You have a less powerful, less powerful ship that has to take down a more powerful ship. How do you solve the problem? Like that is a fun setup for this narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, but because we get to the setup so fast, the two hours between the setup and the payoff it drags so slowly. I think we need maybe like a little bit more time building up the characters before they got their mission or something, or building up to the mission or or whatnot.
0: Yeah, the opening of this film is. A little weird. So it's kind of got this like very old Hollywood style opening to it where we have text over the screen with uh, establishing where we are and like these very slow establishing shots. And I'm not sure if that was intentional in the way to make it feel like old Hollywood films or intentional to just to make it feel like old timey and of its time. Old Hollywood is known for its like naval and swashbuckling epics. Yeah. Um. They're not like this, but that's because the special effects are much better here and they have a bigger budget.
1: Yeah. But no one stabs a sail to slow their descent in the middle of an action sequence, so it's not as good as the originals.
0: Yeah. Their interest in historical accuracy makes these less fun.
1: Yeah, I think it's part of the problem.
0: Although, I will say that the first battle, it definitely kind of feels akin to something like the D-Day scene in Saving Private Ryan. Mm Mm-hmm. That whole old Hollywood opening, very new Hollywood action sequence sort of thing is really an interesting bait and switch, but they kind of keep just having that same battle sequence over and over again. Like, there's there's not a whole lot of interesting stuff going on. Mm-hmm. No one drifts a boat.
1: <laughs> As we all should if we ever have the chance, or even if you don't. And part of the problem is that there aren't really that many different ways to show two boats coming alongside each other and firing their cannons. Something that people noted about Parts of the Caribbean and why it was so successful was no one had really seen that thing that I'm just describing with the effects we had until that movie came out and it came out the same year. And unfortunately, Parts of the Caribbean came out like just the summer before. So it had just a few months ahead. So we were already like, yep, we've seen that. And we've seen it with ghosts in that one. So, well, undead, whatever.
0: Yeah, We also had more sword fights and swashbuckling in that one. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting comparing those two movies because with Pirates of the Caribbean, I think that is hewing much closer to this sword and swashbuckling epic of old Hollywood but using modern techniques and storytelling styles whereas this is attempting historically accurate military story although you know fictionalized because none of these characters actually exist but it kind of falls flat because it's not willing to compromise its historical accuracy for flourish.
1: And the parts of historical accuracy that it feels necessary to include are not the ones that give it that flourish and that wonderment. Mm -hmm. Like, there's a lot of cool stuff where someone will find out about a nifty historical thing and really dig into the complexities of that. Agora is a really interesting film that talks about the history of astronomy and how people started understanding... The movement of celestial bodies before we had the kind of modern technology that we do now. And it's interesting to see how that happens. The different stand punk approaches to charting the heavens. We don't really have that kind of thing here. We don't really have a lot of like fun with a compass or whatnot. Yeah. Anyway, this, the hats are silly, is what I'm saying.
0: <laughs> God, yes.
1: I'm sure they are real to history. They still look really goofy. Mm-hmm. Really, if you're on a boat and you're not wearing a tricorn hat, you probably shouldn't wear one. I mean, actually, you probably should. The sun's going to be beating down. I mean, there's head. also some bicorne hats. <laughs> and
0: those don't work. A lot of them are top hats, and it's just... It's a weird look. Military uniforms. So dumb here. Yeah. Oh, the Victorians. Actually, no, this is even the Victorians. Yeah, this is Edwardians.
1: Who was king? So that's part of the problem we have here. Um, we talked about this before, that neither of us are super up on the
0: Napoleonic struggles. It's one of the few like, world-spanning wars that the U.S. was not involved in, even though it existed at the time. Mm-hmm. So our basic history curriculum doesn't really cover much of it.
1: Mm-hmm. Most of my knowledge of the Napoleonic Wars comes from Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell. Like that is, that's what I'm working from here, so I'm already at a
0: disadvantage. Yeah, and I think that could be another reason why that this didn't take off as a series, because it's, it's the Napoleonic Wars. They're not something that most Americans have a lot of experience with.
1: And because of that, I wasn't all that invested in the struggle. Like I knew that the whole thing was, you know, if the Acheron is allowed to have its way with the sea, then that gives Napoleon an advantage. And I'm like, is that bad? I I guess it's probably not ideal. I get that they care, but I don't strongly care. There's just two empires having a slap fight. And the movie doesn't really do enough to make us really care. It doesn't really do enough to hammer home the stakes. Mm-hmm. We do get that the Acheron is hunting whaling vessels and just kind of preying on them without mercy, which is shitty. But that should have been like one of the opening things. Like, I think instead of the opening fight between the surprise and the Acheron, we should have just had this poor innocent innocent, innocent <laughs> whaling ship uh, just out there, and then suddenly this big Acheron comes up and just takes it over and takes all his riches. That would have established the Acheron as a villain that would have made us go, okay, yeah, bad guy. We get it. Yeah. I mean, they're whaling ships, so, you know, fuck the Zarapple Kweekeg. But. <laughs>
0: I think the reason that they did go with that is because they were unsure how to do it and still maintain the mystery of the Acheron because we don't really get good looks at the ship until the very end. We don't see anyone from the opposing side. So there's kind of this mystery about it and the crew kind of are talking about it as if it's a phantom ship that they're chasing ghosts. Mm-hmm. She's the right phantom she is. Where'd she come up again? Right behind us like that. Out of nowhere? Right
1: behind us. Like that first time, out of fog.
0: Which could have been interesting if they played that up a little bit more, but they don't.
1: You're right, they should have played it up more, but like, I mean, I know, just because I know the genre, that it's not actually like a ghost ship, so it was just sort of this weird thing that made me wish I was watching Pirates of the Caribbean movie. I'm
0: sorry, I keep going back to it. I mean, there's, there's a lot of similarities. They came out the same year, they're both like these naval epics, and they all star a bunch of British actors. Mm-hmm. And of the Caribbean, at least it has, like, a prominent female character.
1: Yeah. Boy, howdy. There are no women with lines in Master and Commander. Nope. No. I think there are a few black crewmen, and they have, like, maybe three lines total. It's a question whether they're crewmen. Uh, huh, huh. Ah. Yeah. ha, Good point. <laughs> I I want to say that slavery was abolished in England at this point, but...
0: I I do not know, unfortunately.
1: Actually, wait, no. I, I do have this. It was abolished a bit before ours was, because... There was some, like, old law that some some otherwise not very great judge looked at. I was like, well, technically, according to the letter of the law, no one can be a slave in, uh, in England. So, let me check on that. Went into effect on, uh, in 1807, fully abolished in 1833, you know, legally, ostensibly, but yeah. and let's see.
0: You're right. It's a little ambiguous. Yep. So, um, I'm, I'm pretty sure that they did that intentionally. Yikes. Don't want to portray black people as slaves. Don't want to be historically inaccurate. <laughs>
1: Which brings me to a bit where Russell Crowe is giving a motivational speech about how they should fight the Akron because You want to see a guillotine in Piccadilly? And it's over here like Yes. <laughs> I guess that is a bit where they you know, set up the stakes of why the Akron bad but is it? Is it though?
0: I guess we should probably talk uh, and dig into Jack Aubrey as a character a little bit more because he is decidedly the main character. He is the one we spend most time with and some of the themes with him are going to be relevant in our other discussion so we might as well talk about them
1: yeah he's very totalitarian-y
0: so we start off and he is kind of lionized as this fantastic captain who was always able to get out of scrapes he is constantly asked by the younger officers about his time with admiral nelson in just off the coast of egypt was one of the major battles beloved by his crew a competent commander and as the film goes on and he keeps making the decision to go after the Akron rather than take care of his crew and his ship we see things turn against him we as the audience our opinion of him shifts I think the major pivot point is Worley's death so Worley is one of the crew members he's relatively popular he is he was involved in getting the the model of the Acheron, and he falls overboard and he's trying to swim towards some of the debris that's fallen off the ship to kind of latch onto and then they can kind of pull him in. But that debris is causing the surprise to tilt to one size and it'll capsize if they don't cut the debris loose. And so Captain makes the decision and he himself as well as Warley's best friend cut all the debris off and just leave him to die. And After that, that's kind of when we get this like really long streak of bad luck and we see Aubrey making bad decisions Mm -hmm. because he is so focused on capturing the Acheron.
1: Mm -hmm. And that would have hit me a lot harder if I really cared about Worley as a character. Like he was like very integral to who the people were. And like he was there. He had like a scene or two, but I didn't really feel for him. He wasn't someone who I was like really invested in.
0: Yeah, we talk about balancing your ensemble cast. It's difficult to do, especially with uh, something like this where there are so many characters and moving parts, but they just don't do a good enough job of it here. Like major characters are pretty well fleshed out, but everyone else is kind of left to atrophy a bit.
1: Mm -hmm. Worley really needed like a senior tour just talks about how excited he is to be two days from retirement and how he's going to go home to his wife and 2.5 kids and open a farm. (laughs) Farm comes open.
0: Yeah this film is much more interested in what the officers are up to than what the crewmen are up to. Mm -hmm. And so many of the characters who aren't officers get the short end of the stick as far as character development because of that. Yeah, but even then, uh, James Darcy,
1: who's kind of the, he's sort of the gem fusion of Lucky Jack and Dr. Maturin. He's the sort of soft-spoken empathetic officer in the military, also doesn't get to be much of a character. Mm -hmm. Like, he has a name. I don't uh, no, Pullings. Pullings. His name is Pullings.
0: Yeah, he's the uh, first mate.
1: Yeah. He's there. I don't care about him as a person.
0: Yeah. You may recognize him as office from Agent Carter. He also is in one scene in Endgame.
1: Who isn't? <laughs> I get what they're going for with Jack, but I don't think that he changes enough to be better. Ab- and all of his choices that are kind of unilateral wind up working out for him mm-hmm. broadly. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Like he, he doesn't change and th- there's not a whole lot of difference in how his crew views him even after everything because you know he won in the end mm-hmm. n- no matter how many people had to die to get us there
1: i what he has to make the choice between staying the course to chase the acheron and going to the G- galapagos to make sure that's that his ship wife can get necessary surgery after someone shot him on accident don't, don't worry about it and he decides to you know go to the galapagos and just you know get somewhere safe for the surgery to happen and it feels like a sacrifice until being there winds up working out because the acron is just also there mm-hmm. um and so it was like oh hey this was all fine the sacrifice i made didn't like actually cost me anything
0: yeah and it kind of just oh we were had character growth then nope just slipped through our fingers
1: i'll admit that could be read as the narrative rewarding him for doing the right thing by essentially making not have to make that sacrifice. I get that, that's not the worst thing in the world. Mm-hmm. But it still means that he doesn't have to like consider the ramifications of his actions or, you know, decide maybe I want to go home or something. Yeah. Yeah. And the crew at no point has to say, Hey no, we, we do want to chase the Akron. we do get it. We we respect you as a captain. Now let's all let's finish the job. Mm-hmm. that could have been a stronger way to make that happen. Yeah. Speaking of totalitarian leaders, do you want to get into The Perfect Storm?
0: Sure, let's go for it.
1: Alright, so The Perfect Storm came out in 2000. It's set in 1991 based on actual events of just a a really bad storm that happened off the New England coast. Commercial fishing boat Andrea Gale's captain, Billy Tyne, has had a string of bad luck and his crew is discouraged. He tells them that no, they're making one last run for the season but doesn't tell them until they're a ways out that they're heading for the Flemish Cap, a risky fishing ground. Before they leave, all the crew, apart from one, have emotional scenes with different people on land to make sure that we all know that they have something to come home to. Tensions rise and fall as they fail to bring more fish in, uh, but they have some great success and uh, bond as characters after a few catastrophes. But then, several different storms all form and collide, and we watch as an Air National Guard are called out to make some rescues, only to need rescuing themselves. Their communication knocked out, uh, time doesn't know that he's headed right for the heart of the storm, risking everyone's lives. As the ship takes more and more damage, they're not able to rescue it, and it capsizes. There are no survivors, and everybody cries. The end. There's some, like, I guess, inspirational things about the inherent glory of being a Fisher person. As
0: George Clooney does a voiceover, but I, that's it. So, this is based off of a nonfiction book. And as with many nonfiction books adapted into movies, it runs into some struggles because real life is not structured like a narrative.
1: Right. Or it's not always.
0: Yeah. Sometimes it is. Mm-hmm. And so the filmmakers hue pretty close to the structure of the book. The book is not structured to work like a movie, and so it runs into some issues. But we'll get to that. I want to start at the opening because the opening feels like... The beginning of, like, one of our prep school movies or even one of our, like, sports movies.
1: As we slowly pan over the wall of stones with the lives lost.
0: All of these, like, shots established in Glasser, Massachusetts. And, you know, this is the small town, but we're a proud people sort of thing. We should also mention the cast is really interesting. So we have George Clooney, Mark Wahlberg, and John C. (laughs) Riley as, like, the three main characters for our fishing vessel.
1: Yeah, all doing fine. Current events notwithstanding, all these actors are pretty good. <laughs> and John C. Riley, while he's known for his comedy, is a really good actor when he wants to be dramatic. Yeah, he wants to be a lot of. Um, he's he's almost the Leslie Nielsen of his generation.
0: Mm-hmm. His onshore storyline is like he is a divorced dad, and his wife is seeing someone new. And because of his job, he's away at sea a lot, and so he doesn't get to see his kid. And he's kind of just trying to be the best dad he can be and try and help his son through what is a difficult situation of co-parenting. Yeah. He's not shitty about his ex-wife finding someone new and like, I'm sure he's a good guy. I know your mom wouldn't take up with anybody but a good guy. And you know, buddy, the most important thing is that you and mommy are happy.
1: He seemed like a genuinely good guy. I wanted him to survive. Let's go for Bugsy.
0: Bugsy is played by, uh, I think, James Hawks. Mm -hmm. He has this whole loser at love sort of vibe. He chats it up with a woman at the bar, like, the day before they head out for their last thing, and they form some sort of weird connection. And she gets, like, awfully emotionally invested in him after, like, one night of talking and drinking
1: hmm I mean, I kind of get it. She seems like someone who maybe also would like to form some sort of connection with someone and found him sweet and hopeless. I can believe that she would form an emotional bond with this person. I don't think that would necessarily last that long. I assume she would move on pretty quickly. She's a real person, so if that's not the case, I'm sorry, Irene. But I don't find it unbelievable. I was also like unsure if I thought that this was a good ship, but you know. It
0: oscillates back and forth between, getting on board and like, nope, nope.
1: Yeah, he kind of negs her a bit.
0: Although there's this one line that Bugsy has, like, I'm not very German, am I? At least you're honest.
1: Yeah, like I said, he seems kind of lovable in a hopeless way.
0: Yeah, he's also, like, self-deprecating.
1: Which, that gets old real fast, but I can see how that can work for an initial point of contact. Yeah. Then we've got Marky Mark as Bobby.
0: (sighs) It's always difficult for me to, like, give a shit about Marky Mark in a film. You committed hate crimes.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. He sure did. It's not great. And his whole thing is that he's trying to make it work with his lady and he doesn't know that she made it down to him on a house and they're going to try to move in together and start a life and get her kids back and all that jazz.
0: Mm-hmm. We've got George Clooney who he's divorced. His kids and ex-wife live in Florida and he is feels very emasculated because he's not bringing in fish and the lady captain is hmm It's not necessarily like an actively sexist thing, but he's definitely, the woman is performing better than me and other people are saying it to my face.
1: There's some definite strains of misogyny in that character.
0: Yeah. It's all microaggressions. There's no macroaggressions.
1: Yeah. Thankfully.
0: Yeah. And I do
1: appreciate that Linda is in this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Linda being the captain of the Hannah Bowden, she's also a fishing captain, but one who's actually good at her job. Kind of the, the rising stars that were.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's see, we also have Sully who used to work on the boat but had a falling out with Murphy John C. Riley's character and is now doing other odd jobs and then he gets brought back in and there's tension between him and Murphy.
1: Is Sully the guy dating Murphy's ex-wife? I thought like there were some lines that made me think that but I don't know how I was just reading into it too much.
0: Dead weight, You've been screwing around all night. Juicer in the head. Cape band bottom
1: shelf. Yeah, well, your wife didn't feel that way.
0: I can see that Miz may be a possibility, but it's not very clear whether that's the case, Mm -hmm.
1: or if he's just antagonizing him on that angle because.
0: Yeah, it's very unclear. We don't really, also don't really know what their original beef is at all. Yeah, like like it's mentioned that Murphy knows how Sully got the scar on his face, but they don't really go into it, or if they do, I missed it in the film.
1: They're better ex-boyfriends, I don't know. There's there's kind of that vibe. Uh, these are real people. These are real people. <laughs> Were.
0: And then we have Alfred Pierre, the only black member of the crew, and who gets the least character development and least lines, and gets to die alone at the end of the movie. All we know about him is he has a lot of sex with
1: a hot lady at the bar. and Sometimes two hot ladies. Sometimes two hot ladies. <laughs> shaking the lamps. And that's it. That's about all we got. Yep. A vibrant person who's probably lived just as much of a life as anybody else, but nope. It's kind of a pity because the first act of this film does a really good job of establishing these characters and making me care about them. Mm -hmm. Even the ones who I don't like all that much, like I don't like Bugsy as like, if he dies in the storm, I don't care. I still believed in them. I still knew who they were. I still understood them. I could imagine what they'd be like in other scenarios.
0: Yeah, like all of the setting up of character stuff works. And even some of the misfortunes that they have on the ship before the storm hits are also compelling. Everything after they leave port, Uh, that happens on the ship is pretty much conjecture. We know a little bit of radio contact between Billy and Linda.
1: Which is weird that some of Billy's like mortal totalitarian decisions, his, his shittiness is presumably created for the film.
0: Yeah. uh, In fact, I was looking into this a little bit. So the, Way it actually happened, Linda was out further east than Andrea Gale was, Mm. rather than west like it is in the film. They were already three days into their trip back to port when they got hit by the storm. Mm. So it wasn't like a conscious decision to like, yeah, we go head through the storm, otherwise we're going to lose this huge catch. Like they were already heading back. So they didn't really have a whole lot of options and it also wasn't unusual for Billy to have to deal with waves like that. He'd been a competent fisherman for over a decade. Mm-hmm. So the way the film frames that decision is...
1: It kind of Ahab's him. That might not have been a real thing.
0: Yeah. And like a lot of people who actually there for these events have a bad taste in their mouth from that. Uh, and in fact, there was a few lawsuits about the way that real people were portrayed in this film afterwards.
1: Yeah, which is not a good look.
0: Mm -mm. This film came out only nine years after this whole tragedy occurred, which is honestly not a lot of time.
1: But it's also long enough that it doesn't quite feel topical. Mm -hmm. Um, Although, when did the book come out?
0: I think 97, so like three years before.
1: Okay, that makes sense. I was going to say like... Almost 10 years out it's kind of a weirdly long time it's, it's right. not like the movies that came out right after 911 that were about 9/11 or whatever yeah but this probably got started being made not long after the book became popular so I get how that life cycle makes sense yeah
0: and it makes sense for the book to take that long because the the offer like put in research effort
1: right had to track people down mm-hmm. yeah
0: like interviews and like piecing together what happened to a ship that was completely lost at sea that they haven't even found the wreck. Speaking of the book, like one of the ways that the book gets around, like can't just like conjecture everything that happened after they went out on the boat and got caught in the storm. So it also includes a number of other rescue operations that happened during that same storm. And so the film does that too. And we get a lot of cutaways to these three yachters. Uh, their name of that boat actually got changed along with the characters because you can't have rich people suing you, only poor people. Yep. So as the storm starts winding up, we keep getting cutaways to them and how they're dealing with things. And it feels really weird and odd. I think it would have worked better if they had attempted to establish these characters at the same time as they were establishing the sword fisherman
1: Yeah, I mean, the third act... Started in 1623 and only ended last night, so they have the time to like squeeze that a bit and then give us more of the rich yachters and also the folks in the helicopters.
0: This came out in 2000, so they were like having fun with special effects and CGI and all that stuff. And it, which look,
1: oh, not bad, they're generally pretty good effects,
0: they're on par with Twister, so like they're noticeable, but they don't look awful
1: you can tell what's happening Mm
0: -hmm. but so much of the third act is just wet people clinging to things Mm -hmm. with nothing of real importance happening Mm -hmm. we don't care enough about these characters or all of their uh, attempts to make it through the storm to really work it's really weird because if you're familiar with the real life events you know what's going to happen and so all of these heroic gestures that they're attempting are going to be for naught Mm -hmm.
1: which i guess could work on a tragic level of like oh like they tried so hard but in the end the sea still took them kind of thing they didn't go down without a fight or whatever
0: yeah but you need to make us care more about these characters and you haven't spent enough time attaching us to them
1: yeah i think part of the problem is that the film doesn't do a good job of establishing how f- close or far the characters are from danger, whether that be by showing where they are on a map or having some sort of like radar thing or whatever. Something to show us, like, oh, these characters can make it like just past the next wave, then they'll be out of the eye of a storm or whatever.
0: Yeah, or whenever they change scenes, like they've established this before, like like a little text on the bottom, just tell us how far they are from the storm or like what the wind speeds or wave heights are at their location, location at that time. Mm-hmm that could have been useful information. Like, we have a much better sense of what sort of financial danger people on shore are in than the physical danger that the people in the boat are in half the time.
1: Which I guess that you wouldn't necessarily know just because we don't have actual details what happened to the Andrea Gale after radio contact was lost. So I get it, but you added a lot of other stuff for the movie. Why not add that too?
0: It's not like you're just making that up all whole, whole cloth. You can kind of guess where they were at based off of like fishing patterns and where their last reported location was and make some educated guesses about the data you have from the wave buoys and shit like that. A whole subplot of this movie is how odd of a phenomenon this storm is. And we have a real-life meteorologist being portrayed by an actor who's like talking us through what is all going on, why this storm is as dangerous as it is, because it kind of just comes out of nowhere. It's
1: leading to a great bit where Linda's shouting over the radio.
0: For God's sake, come in, Billy. These storms have collided. They are exploding.
1: (laughs) I love disaster movies. There's one bit at the end that made me laugh really hard and was not supposed to. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Andrea Gale has gone down, but uh, Marky Mark is like still above the waves, trying to keep afloat, and like, oh, maybe he'll be rescued. But his thinking at Christina, his love interest, and it's very silly. <laughs> In a different film, this might have, like, led to them having I I don't know, mystical connection where they're both thinking each other's thoughts or whatever, to, and that's how he gets rescued or something. But no, it's just him thinking, oh, man, I really love you. I hope you're getting this. And then we see, like, this superimposition of her, like, image off to the right of the frame. And it's incredibly silly. It is a very big tension break.
0: Another th- scene that made me feel like that is when they're first setting out on their final fishing journey. There's, like, this huge triumphant score, but there's no dialogue over it or anything like that. So you're supposed to be filled with, like, pride and awe and everything. It's just six dudes going out on a boat. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They're selling it so hard, and it's just so ridiculous. Like, the very next scene we have, like, Christina is, like, writing a letter to Bobby or or something like that. It would have made so much more sense for the score to go over that... (laughs)
1: Or a scene or two before we had George Clooney giving this whole speech about the very particular things he experiences as a fisherman that give him joy. And that would also work over this.
0: Yeah, or him like trying to hype up his crew before they go out. All of these would have been reasonable choices to pair with that music, but they decided with, no, just do some like panning shots, you know, people looking longingly waving at their their loved ones going out to sea, heading out into the bay.
1: And then, by the same token, when they're dealing with the like worst of the storm, trying to find quick solutions to problems, we have the same kind of music. I give it a of dramatic and exciting, but it comes across more as like, they're succeeding, look how good they're doing when they're not doing good or succeeding. Mm-hmm.
0: This movie also has like the fakest example of CPR that I have ever seen. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the bit where George Clooney is just sort of gently massaging uh, John C. Riley's collarbones?
0: Yep. <laughs> And then he spits up some water. It's like, I'm alive!
1: I did nothing, George Clooney says <laughs> excitedly. Uh. Uh, speaking of Billy, we talked a little bit about his undercurrent of misogyny, and there's this bit where he keeps using, like, very gendered insults towards the storm. feel like he's working out some other issues in this conflict. It's not great. It does not endear me to him. It doesn't make me, like, hope he does well, because I'm like, you're clearly not over your ex-wife, and you're... Engaging the last of your crew because of that. You suck.
0: Yeah. Do you know how difficult it is to make George Clooney, like, not endearing and charming? And this movie accomplishes it. Yeah.
1: George Clooney. Come on. If you haven't seen it, the best comparison I have is that George Clooney in this movie is giving us what the vulture in uh, Homecoming was giving us then. That same
0: kind of, like, wickedly commercial guy. There's some, like, lionizing of the white working class for, like, all the wrong reasons going on in this movie. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about Bob, their handler. He's the one who owns the boat. Yeah.
1: He's not their pimp, but that's the word that came to mind.
0: <laughs> You're unfortunately not far off.
1: Yeah. And he's kind of a 90s villain. He's kind of cartoonish. Yeah. Maybe he's like that in real life. I don't know. He's targeting real yeah. people.
0: Honestly, if you wanted something like this, where it's like a bunch of working class guys doing something extraordinary and like there's tragic loss and everything like that, watch Armageddon. Yeah. That's at least fun.
1: Mm-hmm. This kind of has some of the same vibe as Twister, but Twister is having a lot more fun, and
0: there's kind of this weird heartwarming nature to it. Yeah, like, we don't get a manatee, like, caught up in the waves.
1: That said, at one point, one of the waves does roar at the Andrea Gale, much like the, the tornado that roared at the camera at one point in Twister, so...
0: I can understand doing that for sound design purposes. It's a little weird and hokey, but it fills the emotional tone of that scene. So I get why you do that. Yeah. I think I'm ready to move into the end segment.
1: Yeah. So what wins the Ship of Theseus Award? What ship is more intact by the end of the movie?
0: Probably the Acheron of of the two ships from Master and Commander. Yeah. Although, like, we did have actual repairs on the Surprise, which we did give award bonus points for in our previous episode for the Antonia Graza.
1: Right, like, it is actively demonstrating the ship of Theseus principle in action. Yeah. Admittedly, the Andrea Gale probably isn't all of that broken apart. Like, they found some pieces, but broadly, it is the whole thing sinks.
0: I do have to bring up this real world bit, though. Uh, there is a full-scale recreation of it in a Museum in Massachusetts. Of course. Is that the Andrea, Andrea Gale or is the one at the bottom of the sea the Andrea Gale?
1: Does it have any of the original parts in it?
0: I have no idea. If it does, then that wins. <laughs> Even with like a single s- scrap of wood. I doubt that it has any of the original material. There might be some original material from the ship, but it's probably displayed separately from the model. Mm,
1: so close. It's so close.
0: Yeah, like it, it's probably just like museum recreation sort of thing.
1: Yeah, but. Both the the Surprise and the Acheron are both sailing at the end of the movie, so I think they probably win that award there. Yeah, I think both these movies are not very strong, but talking through them, I like The Perfect Storm less.
0: Yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. There are bits and pieces that I appreciate about Master and Commander that are interspersed throughout, Mm -hmm. so it at least carried me through. But soon after the storm hits in A Perfect Storm, I just lose most of my interest with what's going on the andrea gale i actually am more compelled by what's going on with the coast guard rescue forces yeah like that's way more interesting to me as the film goes and even then by the end of the third act i just don't care because there's been so much nothing to hold me through the film
1: yeah also there's a character in Master and Commander who has uh, knuckle taps that say hold fast, and that made me think about Kitty Pride, and at no point did I think about Kitty Pride during the, A Perfect Storm, so my vote goes to Master and Commander.
0: <laughs> Reasonable decision. Mm-hmm.
1: Sidebar, if you're not reading Marauders right now, what are you doing? <laughs> Kitty Pride and her gay friends on a pirate ship.
0: Well, so that does it for this week.
1: Master and Commander will sail back to the far side of the world, and A Perfect Storm will explode. <laughs> What's up next week?
0: Next week is going to be interesting because we have Life of Pi Mm -hmm. versus In the Heart of the Sea, which I know you are very excited about.
1: I am very passionate about In the Heart of the Sea because I am a dickhead and it is connected to Moby Dick.
0: I love that dickhead is the preferred term for fans of Moby Dick.
1: Listen, we know who we are. We know what we're about. We're not classy. (laughs) Yeah,
0: so I guess we have to prepare for at least one more Ahab analog in these films. Oh, absolutely.
1: (laughs) So thanks for joining us for this episode. If you want to hear more about our analogs, uh, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and wherever you catch your pods. Once again, this has been the Gratuitous
0: Pods Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.